You're in the water loop. Waterloop is made possible in part by grants from Springpoint Partners and the Walton Family Foundation. Waterloop. The Waterloop podcast is sponsored by Flume. It's the perfect device for tracking your home's water use in real time on your smartphone. It's so easy to use. You just attach a small device to your water meter using a band, the same way you put a watch on your wrist. Then you connect to Wi-Fi, you download the app, and you're up and running. It's as simple as that. You don't need a plumber. You don't need to cut into any of your pipes or water lines. Very easy to set up. Then you can set water budgets, how much you want to use each day or week. It'll keep track of that. It'll tell you what's going on in your house with water use minute by minute. It'll send alerts to you if there's excessive water use or if it suspects a leak. In fact, when I installed Flume at my house, it told me almost right away about a leak. I was losing a gallon of water every six minutes. I'm honestly not sure when I would have found that without Flume. You can use promo code WATERLOOP for 10% off at flumewater.com. I want to tell you a story about High Sierra Showerheads, who I'm proud to have as a sponsor of this podcast, particularly because they make incredibly water-efficient showerheads. I've talked with owner David Malcolm about growing up in California, learning about the importance of water and energy efficiency from his father. David has been designing high-efficiency nozzles for agriculture and golf courses for the past 30 years. The golf course people actually came to him wanting a nozzle that produced a uniform spray but was water efficient. So David went in and designed a nozzle that explodes a low pressure stream of water into a shower of large powerful droplets. David actually thought this would make a great shower head and that's how High Sierra Showerheads was born and nobody has their nozzle technology. It's patented, and you get a great shower while saving water. Use promo code LOOP20 for 20% off at HighSierraShowerHeads.com. You're in the Waterloop. Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis. Excited for this episode to talk big picture about the Colorado River Basin, joined by two just leading experts in what's going on out there. I have Amy Haas. She is executive director of the Upper Colorado River Commission. Amy, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's my pleasure, Travis. Thanks for inviting me. And I have Chris Harris. He is executive director of the Colorado River Board of California. Appreciate you coming on as well, Chris. It's great to be with both you and Amy. Thank you very much, Travis. Before we really dive into the conversation, I was hoping you could kind of briefly uh, let viewers and listeners know about your organizations in case they're not familiar. Amy, the Upper Colorado River Commission, what is it? Sure. Uh, Thanks, Travis. We are an interstate administrative water agency that represents the interests of the four upper division states of Colorado, New Mexico, Utah, and Wyoming. And I'd just like to make a point today that my views uh, are my own and don't necessarily represent the position of the commission. And Chris, for folks that might not be familiar with the, the Colorado River Board of California, could you talk about your organization? You bet. Thanks. Um, The Colorado River Board of California is a state agency. Uh, It's been around since the late 1930s, and it's comprised of representatives from 
agencies who utilize Colorado River water in California. And it has uh, ex officio members from uh, the California Department of Water Resources and the Department of Fish and Wildlife and two public members at large. So it's a 10-person board. And uh, it's been um, put together by state statute in order to represent those Colorado River water using agencies in discussions and um, activities and operations associated with the Colorado River uh, and their peers in the other six Colorado River Basin states. And like Amy, I would like to also state that uh, my perspectives today are solely mine and uh, may not represent the board or any of its individual agencies. Thanks, Travis. Sure thing. So I think we're at a real pivotal time for the Colorado River Basin. Um, you all are, are in the midst of big decision-making and activity out there. Uh, one of the things we're going to do today really is do a little retrospective on the law of the river uh, and how things kind of got to where they are today, what worked, what didn't work, uh, all the stakeholders involved, what's happening from a policy perspective. Um, could you talk about why this period of time, why this moment is so important for the Colorado River and why it's worth taking that retrospective look at this time? Travis, you mentioned that we're kind of at this uh, cusp, if you will, of uh, a significant amount of decision making, et cetera. And I, and I guess an observation I would make um, is we've always been at um, in the midst of significant decision-making in the Colorado River Basin. And it really started uh, back in the you know beginning of the 20th century um, when uh, Colorado River water began being put to use and water rights were established in the various states within the basin. And Amy pointed out the um, upper basin states, Colorado, New Mexico, Utah, and Wyoming. And then there the other three basin states are Arizona, Nevada, and California. And collectively, those seven um, have put together a fabric and framework um, over well more than 100 years now um, that has resulted in the Colorado River being arguably one of the most intensively managed um, river basins in the world, and certainly um, one of the most intensively managed in the United States. And it kind of started off with um, a collaborative agreement that was put together between the seven states and uh, involved the United States, of course, and that was the 1922 Colorado River Compact. And that was sort of the foundation stone, um, the keystone, if you will, to what we affectionately call the law of the river. Maybe I'll let Amy jump in now and kind of throw an upper basin perspective, and then we'll just kind of continue as we go. Yeah, I am, I'm happy to do so. And I think that Chris and I could probably spend 10 weeks summarizing this concept of the law of the river, which is essentially, you know, a vast compendium of laws and treaties and regulations and other legal documents that relate to the management of the Colorado River. Um, I'm going to, though, circle back on... Um, on one of your, your initial questions, Travis, and that is why, why is this such a critical time on the river? And, you know, from my perspective, and there are many ways to respond to this question, but I believe that 
this is a, a pivotal, critical time because our water future is more uncertain than ever. Uh, hydrology is naturally variable and water managers have dealt with variability really as long as water has been managed. However, what we're experiencing now is the overlay of climate change on this variability. So in the present tense, that means a 20-year drought on the river, which has been coined the millennium drought, compounded by increasing temperatures resulting in decreased flows. Some scientists refer to this phenomenon as a hot drought and suggest we could see a significant reduction in flow by mid-century. So I think this double whammy, if you will, of drought and climate change increases uncertainty and it makes planning difficult and forces some spirited discussions <laughs> about how each of the seven U.S. basin states and the two Mexican states uh, will shoulder a reduction in supply. And as Chris mentioned, you know, we've learned some lessons about what to do and what not to do when crafting solutions, you know, for this river and reflecting on our lived experiences since the 20, you know, 1922 and really the 1922 compact, that uh, cornerstone of the law of the river. Um, all of that gives us some historical context for some of the future negotiations that will take place on the river and also provide insights into what was effective and what wasn't so effective. You know, this is Chris, let me jump in too. And, and I think Amy's kind of provided a great um, segue to this notion. If you go back and think about the compact, the framers of the compact and largely a lot of the water users in the seven states thought they had something on the order of between 18 and 20 million acre feet to uh, put to beneficial consumptive use in the two basins. So that was kind of what they divided up in the compact. And, um, you know, off we go into the 20th century and the states are developing their, their water uh, uses and their water resources. There's agricultural uses, there's municipal and industrial uses across the Colorado River Basin. And uh, as Amy said, over the course of time, um, you know, bringing to bear science and development of uh, the, the reservoir system in the Colorado River Basin and management of all of these facilities um, in the states and uh, through the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation, uh, we have realized that the water supply conditions and the water supply available to the basin states is profoundly less than what was originally thought to be available back in 1922 when the compact was entered into. And this realization is not something that just occurred recently. It's something that's there's been a growing awareness over um, the past few decades, even, that water supply was going to be the linchpin of intelligent um, water resources management and uses going forward. And now, as Amy said, with um, what the science um, is seems to be telling us related to um, climate change impacts in the Colorado River Basin and across the Western United States. Uh, clearly, we have some um, adaptation and, um, you know, significant decision-making that lies ahead of us. It, it's hard to fully get our arms around this uncertainty. And I think that the, 
retrospective, keeping the retrospective view of the law of the river, all of this uh, framework that we have out there, legal structure, regulations, et cetera, is really, really valuable because over time it has showed us what, as Amy said, what can work, what doesn't work so well. And um, it expands our toolbox. Uh, you know, nothing is cast in stone, I, I guess I would say, or at least I hope, um, that we're able to, you know, work collaboratively, share information, and uh, continue to problem solve as, as things materialize on the ground. 1922, almost 100 years ago. That's incredible. Um, in, in these 99 years, what are some of the big moments or changes in the law of the river? You know, when, where were adjustments made in the, in the policy and in the framework that were, that were most notable? To my mind, and I'll let Amy talk about the 1948 Upper Basin, um, Upper Colorado River Compact, but I, that was one. And then another one was the 1964 decree in Arizona v. California. And then perhaps another one that needs to get kind of tossed in there um, shortly after the compact, in fact, was the 1928 Boulder Canyon Project Act, which authorized the construction of Hoover Dam as well as Imperial Dam and the uh, construction of the All-American Canal, a canal to convey water that stayed in the United States States from Imperial Dam into the Imperial and Coachella Valleys. Amy, take it away. Oh, thank you, Chris. Um, and again, uh, uh, we can't we can't do proper justice to the law of the river. But from a dashboard perspective, uh, I think probably uh, taking this sequentially, the next uh, uh, major accomplishment um, uh, on the law of the river was the 1944 treaty. Uh, between yeah. the U.S. and the Republic of Mexico. And that treaty allocated the use of one and a half million acre feet per annum of Colorado River water to Mexico. And this, this obligation is really sacrosanct in the law of the river. And the potential for a treaty was anticipated years before the treaty was actually signed and was made an obligation under the 1922 compact. Since the 1944 treaty, numerous what we call implementing agreements, uh, otherwise known as minutes, have been entered into by the two countries. And these minutes are also components of the law of the river. Um, the second, as Chris, as Chris noted, the second seminal document in the law of the river, I think in addition to the 22 compact, is the Upper Colorado River Basin Compact of 1948 which takes the allocation that was apportioned to the upper basin under the 22 compact and divvies it up among the states of Colorado, New Mexico, Utah, Wyoming, and Arizona. And the 48 compact also created the upper Colorado river commission, which I mentioned at the outset is the administrative water agency that I staff the commission is comprised of a commissioner uh, from Colorado, from New Mexico, Utah, and Wyoming, as well as a federal commissioner appointed by the president. And at this point, I'll shift back to Chris. Chris, if you want to pick it up here in terms of our sequence of the law of the river, you by all means. Another thing that may be of interest um, to your viewers uh, and yourself, Travis, is that 
there's um, a difference, if you will, in the way the Colorado River is administered in the uh, Colorado River Basin, between the upper basin and the lower basin. And part of that is a function of the, the laws and regulations that have grown up within this body that we call the law of the river. Um, and a lot of it is directly and inextricably linked to the decree, uh, the Supreme Court decree in Arizona v. California, which was originally issued by the court in 1964. And then finally, um, after some additional work has been done by special masters and the lower basin states, a consolidated, consolidated final decree was issued in 2006. But uh, in any event, it's resulted in um, federalism is perhaps not the right term, but a significant amount uh, of responsibility and a primary role for the Secretary of the Interior in managing Colorado River operations and the use of Colorado River water in the lower basin in Arizona, California, Nevada, versus that of Colorado River water resources development and management and use in the upper basin states, which is much more driven by uh, individual state public water code uh, and uh, the collaboration among the four upper basin states through the Upper Colorado River Commission, Amy's um, uh, agency. And, and that's, it has been challenging at times, I think, for the seven states to work uh, with that. Um, there are significant obligations and requirements on not only the three lower basin states, but also, as I said, the Department of the Interior because of that decree. And uh, that has been um, definitely something that I think we've all grown accustomed to dealing with, but it's, it's a challenge uh, in and of itself year by year. I'm so glad you, you uh, raised that very critical point and the distinction uh, between the two basins with respect to our relationships uh, with the Secretary of Interior, Chris, I think that's uh, a key, and it's been really a key component in terms of navigating some of these basin-wide agreements, whether it's the 2007 interim guidelines or the 2019 draft contingency plans. You know, we use the shorthand often in the upper basin that the Secretary of Interior is not the upper basin water master uh, as, as the secretary is to the lower basin. And I think that's really key. And, and that's not to say that in the upper basin, our relationship with the Department of Interior, primarily uh, through the Bureau of Reclamation, is not central uh, to so many of our water management um, decisions and protocols and so forth, because Reclamation operates some of the big facilities in the upper basin but we still do not have the same legal relationship as Chris pointed out, uh, which, you know, the genesis of which was the 64 decree with the secretary of interior as the lower basin does. I'm yep. curious uh, through these hundred years and, and the, the changing of the law of the river and building the law of the river. Um, what are some of the things that, that stand out that, that didn't work and, and had to be changed? What, what lessons were learned when, when those things were realized? I hate to start with, with cast a negative uh, uh, viewpoint on this, but I would say that um, 
the big things, in my opinion, that didn't work and the lessons that were learned, uh, I would put into two categories. I think the first being negotiated outcomes versus prevailing facts. Um, We've already established that the 22 Compact and the 1944 Treaty Allocations, for that matter, were based on negotiated numbers and inflated natural flow estimates, which resulted in a total allocation of 17 and a half million acre feet per annum. You know, we have since learned, and Chris pointed out uh, earlier, that our forebears knew that the natural flow of the river was far less than the compact allocation. But we've inherited this legacy, and we must work to manage a system with far less water than what was originally promised. And in my opinion, I think we've got a river flow of between 12 and 14 million acre feet per year. How do we manage around that? Um, The second category, and and Chris touched on this in in his discussion of the 64 decree, is this... uh, this litigated outcome that we've been saddled with. You know, we live through, some of us, (laughs) the protracted litigation of Arizona v. California. And that was a 12-year epic battle before the Supreme Court. I believe it included a three-year trial in front of the special master. And that result was, was basically litigated, right? We ended up with litigated results some of which haunt both basins to this day, I think it's fair to say. Um, I ventured it to, to say, and Chris, you may agree or disagree, that a lot of our successes have come about after the 64 decree was entered and the shared desire to control our own destiny rather than submitting to a litigated outcome. And that I think, again, it's fair to say, you know, most of the basin states were not really happy about. Yeah, I, I agree with that completely. I, I, I could not have said it better. And I think um, let's turn now to looking at some of the things that did work and just sure. build on um, what Amy's laid out for us. So if you take the, the notion that litigation is the least desirable path for decision making in the basin, now let's let's really focus on some of the things that that have worked and have worked well. And also there are some things that didn't work so well, but using this new sort of tool, collaboration, communication, coordination, um, we've managed to get through it. And I think one of the primary things would be water quality management. If you go back in um, time to the, the late 1960s and early 1970s, uh, salinity management, particularly down at the bottom of the system in uh, the Yuma area, Yuma, Arizona, and uh, water quality management related to our treaty delivery under the 1944 Water Treaty really cropped as a significant binational issue between the two countries. And at that point, the seven states actually put together what they called the Committee of 14, two representatives from each state. And they uh, really did some significant technical brainstorming over several years and uh, worked with the Department of State, who is the uh, primary arm of the U.S. government in administering the 1944 treaty, and the Bureau of Reclamation, who runs the river system. And ultimately, this resulted in a new minute Um, as Amy mentioned, to the 1944 treaty, Minute 242, and it laid out specific water quality criteria for the U.S. deliveries to Mexico. 
And um, clearly the states realized, well, if the salinity of the river continued to degrade, we were going to have trouble in meeting these water quality criteria associated with our treaty deliveries. And that led to the basin states collaborating on the development of a basin-wide salinity control program that was codified by the Congress in 1974 as the Colorado River Basin Salinity Control Act. And it has been a shining bright star of what can be done when the states collaborate together and implement uh, significant uh, water quality improvement measures and activities in conjunction with the Department of the Interior across much of the upper Colorado River Basin. We have uh, decreased salinity in the, the flow of the Colorado River. We have improved water quality for not only users in the United States, but most importantly, from our treaty delivery obligation for our neighbor to the south in Mexico. It's been a highly successful program. We are now controlling something on the order of 1.2 million tons of salt from entering the Colorado River on an annual basis. And there are plans to, to implement even additional measures. And I think it was through that example of how we can work together that um, has shaped, I would say, the, the past few decades where we have now our first choice every day of the week is to get together as seven states and talk through whatever problem we have at the time and see if we can come up with a collaborative solution that can, uh, um, can be implemented and, and uh, you know. Sure. It, it, well, because litigation is just not the key. Yeah. You know, I, I couldn't agree more with uh, Chris's uh, depiction of the success of the salinity program. I think it is, is one of our shining successes. Uh, in the basin. I might add to that another success, and that is uh, uh, our recovery programs in the basin, which have allowed water development to occur while endeavoring mm -hmm. to recover threatened and endangered species. In, in particular, there are four fish species uh, in the basin, the humpback chub, razorback sucker, Colorado pike meadow, and the bony tail. And these programs do all of this while complying with our compacts, state law, and federal tribal trust responsibilities. There are three recovery programs that the Upper Basin participates on, and, and these include a diverse group of stakeholders, tribes, hydropower interests, states, obviously, federal agencies, and the NGO community. Um, the first is the Upper Colorado River Endangered Fish Recovery Program. Um, the second is the San Juan Recovery Implementation Program, uh, and those two programs are going, they're, they're, they're going to be reauthorized by Congress in, in 2023, uh, so that is in the offing. The third program is a program that both the upper and the lower division states uh, participate in, and that is the Glen Canyon Dam Adaptive Management Program. Uh, this was created after Glen Canyon Dam was completed in response to concerns about how the operation of the dam would affect species and resources downstream. Um, you know, in my opinion, and Chris, feel free to, to hold forth here, but I think each of these three programs have been hugely successful. 
in terms of managing resources and fostering and facilitating collaboration between key stakeholders, all the while improving the status of threatened and endangered species. And we're seeing a couple of these listed species under the ESA, Endangered Species Act, uh, being forecast to be downlisted uh, from endangered to threatened in the near term. Well, that's fantastic. Chris. Yeah, I was just going to say, if, and then let's just continue our trip down the rivers from sort of the <laughs> environmental perspective. Um, in 2005, it took 10 years to develop. So uh, we, the lower basin states began working on developing a large, comprehensive environmental compliance program that met both federal and state um, resource management obligations, the Endangered Species Act, California Endangered Species Act, et cetera. And in 2005, the Lower Colorado River Multi-Species Conservation Program was implemented. And that essentially covers reclamations operations and the state's use and management of Colorado River resources uh, from Lake Mead all the way down to the southerly international boundary with Mexico. And that's another program uh, similar to the Upper Basin Recovery Programs that has been enormously successful. It's created thousands of acres of native riparian habitat that is managed and maintained along the river for not only um, aquatic uh, species, but more species and riparian species and birds. And I think most importantly, um, back to our binational relationship with Mexico, which has just exploded over the past um, couple of decades uh, in a positive, positive fashion. We have been working collaboratively with Mexico to um, develop a large-scale habitat restoration and management program down there that addresses um, environmental needs in what is known as the Colorado River Delta region. And this joint um, effort is done under a series of minutes to the 1944 treaty. And it's voluntary, it includes um, not only uh, federal agencies, but uh, the seven states and water users within the states, NGOs. It has been enormously successful. And in fact, in 2014, a large volume of Colorado River water was released through the gates at Morelos Dam and flowed down the Colorado River Channel, which is normally dry, and ultimately made its way to the Gulf of California. And to this day, there are thousands of acres of native riparian habitat that have been established down there and are maintained with Colorado River uh, water de delivered through the Mexican irrigation system. So that's been um, a, a program that all of us have been incredibly uh, proud to be a part of, and we look forward to continuing this uh, wonderful relationship that we have with Mexico. Sure. You know, Chris did a great job of summarizing the successes uh, in terms of our relationship with the Republic of Mexico. And I'd just like to add that uh, the relationship has been so successful of late, it has served as, as a model, essentially, for other right. uh, for other countries. I mean, it's gotten it's it's gotten the attention of, of the world, as it were. So it's mm. it's very promising. And I'm also pleased to, to hear that we can um, enumerate uh, successes uh, they, that, that far outweigh some of the uh, 
some of the failures that we started the conversation uh, discussing. I, I'm going to add just one more success uh, to, to the mix here, and that is some of the system conservation efforts that have occurred in both the upper and lower basins uh, over the last um, five, six, seven years. Um, with respect to the upper basin in particular, between 2015 and 2018, uh, we engaged in a pilot program to test the concept of temporary, voluntary, compensated conservation of use. And again, this was precipitated by the current millennium drought and declining reservoir elevations. The Upper Colorado River Commission acted as the contracting entity for the Upper Basin Program and awarded projects to conserve water. All told, there were uh, 64 projects that conserved approximately 47,000 acre feet of water. The program ultimately ended because the four states decided to focus their efforts on developing a larger scale program, which we call demand management in the context of the upper basin drought contingency plan. And that is something that we are working on today. Incredible. I, and speaking of today, I'd like to kind of focus on that now. And um, what what happens next with river policy, with the law of the river? Where where are we at this moment? I know you all are busy and your sleeves are always rolled up, but I think they're they're going to roll up even further here. Um, what's what's going on? What's on tap? Well, it, it's worth perhaps mentioning that. Um, in 2007, we implemented a uh, large-scale collaborative operational agreement, which we affectionately call the 2007 Interim Guidelines. And it laid out criteria and specific actions and activities that would be taken by uh, the, the seven states, as well as the Secretary of the Department of the Interior, uh, through the Bureau of Reclamation for managing the Colorado River system. And again, just to, to frame that, it, it really was uh, put together and implemented in the midst of, as Amy referred to, this millennium drought. We went from essentially full reservoir conditions in 1999 and 2000 to, by 2004, the reservoir system was essentially 50% of capacity. Uh, that certainly got everybody's attention. We had some horrible years uh, strung together of unregulated inflow uh, to Lake Powell, um, which certainly uh, made all of us stand up and take notice. And we realized that the way we were operating the system probably was not going to be sustainable over the long term. Um, in any event, we did develop, um, after several years of a lot of work, the 2007 interim guidelines. And I think something that's worth pointing out right now is that this is another success story. As challenging as it was to put those guidelines together in the face of this profound, significant, and sustained drought that the Colorado River Basin was in then and appears to be in to this day, um, the guidelines worked pretty well. They worked uh, um, like they were intended to work. And largely, even with um, terrible water supply conditions and hydrology, we have managed to maintain the reservoir system at about 50% of capacity. 
And at the same time, we have provided all of the water users in states with um, some level of certainty and reliability for annual water supplies, and we've incentivized conservation and storage. And Amy alluded to some of these activities in the upper basin regarding um, uh, voluntary compensated conservation that's resulted in uh, some water savings. And in the lower basin, it's been even more profound. Over the years since the guidelines were in place, we've managed to uh, conserve and store in Lake Mead something over 3.2 million acre feet. And then probably nearly another 2 million acre feet has been conserved to the benefit of the system. And, and again, I have to point out that this has not only been done by users in the United States, but it's also included our partners in Mexico. They participate in these conservation and storage programs. It's given Mexico additional flexibility and management. And I think to bring it back to your question, uh, Travis, about where we go from here, um, the United States, the Department of the Interior, just completed a retrospective review of the 07 guidelines. So from 2007 through 2019 or 2020, I guess, um, they have put together their assessment of how well the guidelines were implemented and how well they performed. And I would encourage viewers, if they're interested, um, I believe you can go on Reclamation's webpage and download a copy of that document. And it's a fascinating look at um, the complexity of operating this system year in and year out and how and what we've done to ensure that we bolster and protect and efficiently manage storage in the reservoir system. And that's going to give us significant information related to what we may want to do going forward. Amy, what, what do you have to add to, to where we are now and where things are going? What happens well, I, next? Right. And, and really building uh, from Chris's um, summary, did a great job summarizing the context for the 2007 interim guideline development um, and some of the outcomes of that process, which I agree, I think um, on balance were successful. I think currently all eyes are on the renegotiation of these guidelines, which as Chris said, are set to expire in 2026. Um, I'd like to say though, however, that if the hydrology continues to deteriorate, we will see the need to take intervening measures, I believe. And I think a, a, a very recent example of this is the uh, deployment of the Upper Basin's Drought Response Operations Agreement. And this agreement uh, is an aspect of the drought contingency plans agreed to by the Upper and Lower Basins in 2019 and approved by Congress and signed into law. These drought response operations will result in the development of a plan to release large slugs of water from reservoirs in the upper basin in order to essentially prop up elevations at Lake Powell and then to replace that water in the upper reservoirs once Lake Powell elevations have stabilized. If the level of Powell drops below a certain trigger elevation, the upper basin's obligations to the lower basin under the 22 compact 
may not be met and a host of other horribles <laughs> may result. Um, you know, some of this worsening hydrology will also have a negative effect on hydropower generation in the basin and at Lake Powell in particular. All of this helps fund key initiatives in the basin, including the salinity control program that Chris described and the recovery programs, which I talked about. Declining hydropower production may also result in increased energy costs for power customers in the basin. So I think in terms of what happens next with river policy, we know that we're going to enter into a renegotiation phase, you know, with respect to the current operational criteria or the 07 guidelines, which are set to expire. But I think we've, we've really got to keep an eye on hydrology. I think that could dictate uh, what becomes front and center for the basin in the coming years. Mother nature still has a big role in all of this, huh? Oh, you bet. <laughs> Yeah, it it does. And, and I guess, you know, I would like to jump in here for a minute and kind of toot California's horn. Um, you know, you think about uh, 2020, just take 2020 as a snapshot for the state of California. We had over 4.2 million acres uh, were burned in wildfire. And the implications of that in the context of watershed and forest management probably going to be felt for maybe the next century. I don't know. Um, but clearly our fire season over here is virtually year round now. And uh, we seem to be in another very dry winter uh, in California with the Sierra snowpack. And uh, so California uses something like 40 million acre feet collectively in the entire state each year. And about 32 million acre feet of that is for agricultural purposes. And so the Colorado River is a very important component of California's overall uh, water portfolio. And um, particularly down in Southern California, it's not only very important for agricultural uses in the Imperial and Coachella Valleys, but also for the municipal and industrial uses in the South Coastal Plain, the Los Angeles, San Diego region. It's huge. And I, I guess it's it's worth kind of also mentioning that, um, you know, the states have been actively involved in reducing uses in the Colorado River Basin for several decades now. And starting in the late 1980s, California began implementing water conservation, uh, temporary compensated water conservation programs that resulted in the transfer of Colorado River supplies from the agricultural sector to the municipal sector. And uh, California's Colorado River water use lawfully was up around 5.2 million acre feet in the late 80s and early 90s. And even then, um, as Arizona was growing into its full uh, mainstream apportionment, and Nevada was as well, um, everyone realized that was not sustainable and that work needed to be done to get California down to its basic mainstream apportionment of 4.4 million acre feet. And again, I would say that the drought uh, was a good stimulus. Um, it drove decision-making and collaboration in the basin. And by 2003, the state of California had implemented what we call the quantification settlement agreement. And, uh, those long-term conservation and transfer agreements um, have 
permitted California to move from that 5.2, 5.3 million acre feet per year of use down to 4.4. And we did it almost overnight. Hmm. Um, at the end of the Clinton administration, we had implemented what we called the interim surplus guidelines. And uh, that was intended to provide California with a ratcheted, soft, step-down landing that would move it sequentially, incrementally from 5.2, 5.3, down to its 4.4 million acre feet of use. Well, the drought happened in 2000 and reservoir conditions uh, began to degrade and California essentially went to 4.4. And uh, I would just point out that in 2019, the state of California used 3.85 million acre feet. Um, the total lower basin use was about 6.6 .6 million acre feet out of 7.5. That was apportioned to it. So the states know how to um, conserve water and store the conserved water to the benefit of the system. And I think, you know, as Amy said, these are the kinds of things, given the uncertainty related to future hydrologic conditions in the basin, um, that we're going to have to utilize as we move forward, understanding and recognizing that um, the, the days of unlimited water supplies in the reservoirs um, and unlimited releases uh, each year to downstream uses may not be feasible. We're going to have to find other ways of um, developing demands that can be met realistically over time. Yeah. Great. Well, Amy and Chris, uh, I appreciate this crash course in in the law of the river and the history of the river and uh, fascinating look at the policy. Uh, like like you said in the beginning, we could spend 10 hours, 10 weeks, 10 years <laughs> talking about all of this. But thank you both for your time and the information. Appreciate it. Oh, you're thank very you. welcome, Travis. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's episode. A special thanks to Waterloop supporters, Spring Point Partners, and the Walton Family Foundation. The Waterloop Podcast is sponsored by High Sierra Showerheads, the smart, stylish way to save energy, water, and money while enjoying a powerful shower. Save 20% with promo code Waterloop at HighSierraShowerheads.com. Waterloop is also sponsored by Flume, the smart water monitor that tracks your home's water use in real time and provides data on your smartphone. Save 10% with promo code WATERLOOP at flumewater.com. If you like Waterloop, please subscribe to the YouTube channel or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on social media and visit waterloop.org to sign up for updates. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop.